Hello, and welcome to the On Time Autism Intervention Podcast, a podcast for parents of children three and younger, dedicated to providing accurate information about autism, autism intervention, and guidance for your new path. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Washington's On-Time Autism Intervention, or OTAI. We're a collaborative project led by the UW's Autism Center and Herring Center for Inclusive Education. Our work is supported by the Seattle Foundation and aims to increase equitable access to timely diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder and evidence-based intervention for young children and their families. We are so glad you're here. Hi, and welcome back to the On-Time Autism Intervention Podcast. Hi, Jess. Hi, Ashley. I'm so happy to see you. It feels like it's been a long time since we've done this, but I'm happy to be here. I know we have we have kind of some long time, long time stretches in between our episodes, but I'm really happy to be here because today we have an awesome guest who's going to teach us all about occupational therapy. Who do we have today, Jess? We have Sarah, who's an occupational therapist at the Autism Center at UW, and um, she's been working with us for a little while, and we're really excited to have her on the podcast to share with us about occupational therapy, which for some of us is, is remains a mystery. It's 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 like this term occupational therapy that just unlike speech, everybody sort of knows what speech is, you know, occupational therapy, I think is something our listeners are are curious about. So let's just dig right in, Sarah, and tell us a little bit, tell our listeners what is occupational therapy. Sure. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Um, occupational therapy is really kind of complex and hard to understand for a lot of people. And I get a lot of questions about what it is, but generally speaking, occupational therapy holistically considers a person or group, their environment and the things they want and need to do in their daily lives. We do this by thinking about the requirements of a task and thinking about a person's strengths and challenges. And we are in numerous community and medical settings and work with folks across the lifespan. And as a result, our work looks different depending on the population. Okay, so, so, so we're talking to the parents of really young kids. So what, they don't usually have occupations and workplaces. So what does an occupational therapist do with super young kids? Absolutely. So even as kids, we do have occupations, um, except our occupations are play, sleep, um, rest, spending time with our families and engaging in our daily routines. Um, And even for some of those three-year-olds going to preschool. So when we're working with those kiddos, we're thinking about their motor skills, how they're engaging in play and social participation, their quality of sleep, um, how they're interacting with their friends and siblings, and even thinking about cognitive skills. Some OTs will even take this a step further and may specialize in toileting or feeding and can help um, clients and families in that way as well. That makes total sense. You're right. Little guys do have occupations and they do. I sort of, as you're describing it, it makes me want to be a little person. (laughs) I think, uh, I mean, my job is very playful. So I guess my occupation is play too, but these guys, what they're doing a lot is, is playing and yeah, making their way around. Um, Ashley, did you want to ask any questions? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, um, you know, it's it's so interesting because, like, when I hear you describe it, Sarah, 
you started out by saying it's holistic and it is, I mean, it really sounds like occupational therapy can touch kind of every aspect of somebody's life. Um, and it just makes me wonder with the really little ones, again, what are some common, like really common questions, really common support needs that you might hear from parents or caregivers of kids under three? Yeah, absolutely. And again, because the scope is so broad, kind of the biggest question I'll get from parents is, is this typical or is is this in your scope? Like, is this something you do? Um, And often with this younger age group, OTs play a a role in setting developmental expectations. Um, Things like, hey, we've heard a lot about tummy time. Is that actually something we have to do or can we skip that? Um, When should we be toileting young children? And so I'm often helping coach parents in those expectations and, hey, your kiddo is on track or, well, they need some extra support here. For the tummy time, for example, like we really want kids to be sleeping on their backs at night and playing on their bellies so that they can engage with their toys and their caregivers and develop strengths so that they can do those other things when they're older. Or even for the toileting question, we're thinking about like, okay, is that child showing any signs that they're ready to learn how to toilet train? Um, are they uncomfortable when their diaper is wet? Um, and they they should be really kind of taking the lead on that and signaling to us when they're ready. So I'm often more of a coach and a partner with parents at this age than providing direct intervention to the kids themselves. So when it's- you're working with the child under three, typically the parent is in the room too. So it's, it's a, it's a direct intervention with the child, but it's also coaching. The parent is there and you're really helping to facilitate their interaction. It sounds like. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is a really unique part about those birth to three services is the, the entire family unit is the client. When you're talking about OT for young children, we are coaching the parents and we want them involved in all of the sessions because they're the expert on the child. Um, They spend so much more time with their child than we ever will. So we want them to feel confident in their skills um, and in helping their child develop. And I love that too, because it has such a big impact. So, you know, that one session per week, maybe that you spend with a family, when you're coaching them and helping them kind of tweak or adjust the way that they're supporting their child and all of these things, they get to then carry that out throughout the whole week. And I think that's sometimes something that people, um, when they're start new to services, kind of surprised by that coaching model, but there's really good rationale for it is that, you know, it helps support so many practice opportunities throughout that child and caregivers week, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, one I, other, I, oh, so go ahead, Jess. Well, I just going to say, I, I totally agree. I think that we on the podcast have talked a lot about being proponents of, of parent coaching as a model for young children and, and exactly align with, with Sarah's philosophy around parents being the experts in their child and parents, you know, us wanting, uh, practitioners wanting to empower and impart information to parents so that they feel like they can, there's nothing that I, as a practitioner can do that you can't do. Like we want you to be able to do all these amazing things. And so, but I, I also think, you know, part of our model here is really collaboration with the Berta three or the ESIT program in, in Washington state. And sometimes I hear parents that are a little bit frustrated that, that their people are using this coaching model. Like I just want the therapist to work directly with the child. And like, and, and I think um, 
that I, I don't know. I wonder if you get that, Sarah, if you get any like pushback, like, ah, can't you just do it? I want, I don't, I don't want you to be coaching me. Yeah, I do. I think these caregivers often have so much on their plates already and don't feel like they have the space or the capacity to take on another responsibility. And therapy can be a big commitment, especially when you're involved in these birth to three and ESIP programs. Often these are kids that have multiple therapies, right? In addition to whatever else is going on in the home, if there are other siblings, if the parents work. And so it can feel like an added caregiver burden to take on a coaching model. And like, we have really great research and efficacy showing us that the family is going to be more successful if the parents can actually implement the strategies. Cause I can, I agree completely with what you said, Jess, like, even though I've gone to school and I've practiced all of these skills, often OT looks very simple when you're just watching, it looks like play, or it looks like you're practicing getting dressed. And those are all skills that I can help teach that parent as well. Um, Cause they're going to have a much bigger impact and they have the relationship with the child that is also impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's empowering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing that I just wanted to touch on that you were mentioning in the examples you described about tummy time um, and the other example you brought up about toilet training that I think is so helpful too in thinking about young children, what we're working on now and the why for why we are addressing certain goals. And I think sometimes that can be overlooked or maybe we, maybe as practitioners, we don't always take the time or have the time to explain to parents, like this skill that we're working on, working on tummy time is a foundational skill that is going to set up opportunities for learning about social interactions with people and all of these other really important things. So, um, I just, I love that you kind of explained that not, not necessarily think of it as a prerequisite, but like the why, and then what does this help set your child up to learn next? Because I think that sometimes can be really helpful for caregivers to understand as well is, um, you know, why are we working on this? When I said I wanted my child to be able to do X, Y, and Z. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Often there are so many kind of sub skills that go into something we're working on. And then you're right that new skill is always going to evolve into something else over time, right? We're constantly growing and developing and we want what we're practicing to reflect that as well. I think that's such a great point. Okay. We're going to shift gears for a minute. Cause I think the other um, big thing that I hear a lot about with my families and think a lot about when I think about occupational therapy is, is sensory needs. And, um, and I know a lot of our families come in with, with children who have various, you know, sensory sensitivities or things like that. So tell us a little bit uh, um, about this idea of like sensory diets and, um, yeah, and helping with sensory issues for children. Yeah, absolutely. So sensory is kind of the wheelhouse of OT. Obviously, as we talked about, we're really, we're very general and we cover a lot of territory, but sensory is pretty specific to OT. Um, And so we're always considering how a child interacts with their environment and what a sensory diet is. It takes it one more step. So you're curating an individualized treatment plan and you're saying as a parent, I think by creating X, Y, Z opportunities for your child, they are going to better be able to do the things they want and need to do in their day. So for example, often 
if you have a child who really needs proprioceptive input, input to their muscles and joints that help them understand where their body is in space. Can you define um, what is proprioceptive input just for yes. all of our listeners out there who don't know? Absolutely. Yep. So just like I said, it's that input to your muscles and joints. You might also hear it called heavy work. Um, that is a sign that often it gets uh, a term that will get thrown around and described. It's anything involving pushing, pulling, lifting, um, and it's going to help you understand where your body is in space. Um, it's going to make it so that you can better sit in your chair or that you can stay focused during an assignment in class. Um, and I know you guys are specifically zero to three, <laughs> but for this example, I think it's easier to talk about a slightly older child. Um, so for that child, I may say, okay, this child really needs to jump on a trampoline for 10 minutes in the morning before they go to school, right? That crashing and that input to their ankles and their knees is going to feel really good. And then when they are confident in their body, their brain will function better is kind of the bare bones of that concept. So with a sensory diet, I'm often not recommending that for children under three. Um, because there's a level of, well, there's a high level of caregiver involvement. It takes a lot for families to carry out these plans. And often there has to be a level of the child can do some of those components independently. Um, and you're, you're really not going to see that in that younger population, but really all it is, is like a fancy treatment plan specific to sensory processing. Okay, Sarah. So did I, I feel like I maybe did my own version of a sensory diet today then. So I went for a run this morning and then I came home and I have a little candle lit. <laughs> it's rainy outside and I've got my cozy little blanket and my podcast set up here. Um, and I feel really focused and ready to work. Is that, I mean, that is like the, you know, novice version, but is that kind of what you mean? Yeah, totally. I'm hearing that you got some movement. You kind of explored that proprioceptive input we just talked about, right? Thinking about your, your the input to your knees and your ankles hitting the pavement while you're running. You have some soothing smells, I assume. Most of us don't buy candles that we dislike. <laughs> um, blankets, even I know some folks love weighted blankets and lap pads. Um, that again is giving you that deep pressure, which is really regulating. Yeah. I, I think your setup sounds lovely and very supportive. Hey, all right. Um, okay. So sensory diet sound like we're thinking a little bit more about kids over the age of three. Do you have a short list of things that you think most young children with autism would benefit from strategies or things for caregivers to be thinking about? Yeah. So while I think that that sensory diet is advanced, I don't think exploring sensory processing is advanced. I think, as I said before, like, while I think that parents are the experts in their children, parents do a really great job of kind of taking note of how their child responds to their environment. Even if they don't have the language to specifically detail the exact sensory processing kind of domains, I think parents are really responsive to their children. Um, so you might do some experiments. Like if your child is having a, a meltdown or a tantrum, sometimes I wonder like, what would happen if you turned off the lights, right? So there's less visual input, or 
if you dropped the volume of your voice, so you're speaking calm and quiet, and you can barely hear you now, Sarah, you're making (laughs) it's different, right? (laughs) And you guys are, you instantly like leaned in, right? To listen to me and hear what I'm saying, right? We all respond to those cues differently. And so it could be fun to play around with that and see, huh, what does my child do when I like enact these little experiments? Um, And along that same line, I think co-regulation. Often you'll hear a big buzzword as children get older is self-regulation. We expect that we as individuals can control our emotions and our feelings. That is a big ask for adults, teens, never mind somebody zero to three. That's not happening. But we can kind of experiment with this term called co-regulation. So again, thinking about how we're responding when a child is upset or hurt. Um, We want to respond in a way that is soothing, thinking about our voice and our tone. We don't want to be also escalated and freaking out, even if it's feeling really scary and intimidating as a, a parent, when our child scrapes our knee or falls down or climbs on something. When we can kind of decrease our own response and we can come to a child with like being calm and regulated on our own. We're modeling for children, like how to manage big emotions and conflict. And that is my number one thing because we hold on to those models for the rest of our lives. And then I think, and I totally did see us doing that just like, you know, as you start to be quieter, we start to be quieter and you know, yeah. Yeah. Kids are so tuned into our their caregivers right it feels like you know back in the day when I was more involved in ABA we used to talk about like level of arousal I don't know Ashley you know if that's a concept that ABA still talks about but just sort of like needing to modulate your arousal when you know when you do want to do, be doing activities like how do you kind of help to to increase you know kids activity level and excitement and then when it's time to sort of like mellow out how do you use your body and your voice to sort of to lower the level of arousal well and this is what i love so much about an uh an interdisciplinary model and working together because it, it's funny as sarah was describing occupational therapy i was thinking well, same, like that's really a lot of what we do in behavior analysis, but we just have different ways of doing it. And I think we both bring different strengths and different, you know, maybe areas where we would benefit from the support of each other to the table. And so I love, like my whole idea is I can, I can come up with, I can come up with a good way to teach a plan, but I'm there are so many gaps in my knowledge about everything that Sarah is talking about today that I need Sarah, I need an OT on my team. Um, so that I, because I don't know about physiological responses to, you know, ankles crashing into a trampoline. Like that is just not something I have ever studied as a behavior analyst. And so being able to work together on figuring out, okay, I can help with the behavioral elements of getting to the trampoline, transitioning back to the classroom, thinking about, you know, putting together that schedule. But I, you know, like, I I think this is where working collaboratively uh, with a team of professionals is just the best option. (laughs) Totally. And I was just going to say the same for me as a psychologist, as she's talking, I'm thinking about sort of anxiety and, and, 
and conceptualizing lots of these things as kids who are anxious about sounds or about stimuli and how, what do we do as parents? What do we do as professionals to help to, you know, moderate, modulate that, Mm -hmm. that anxiety and things like that. So you're absolutely right. Interdisciplinary um, work is really, really important. So we love having you here, Sarah. (laughs) Tell us some others, Sarah. I, I bet you have some other things that most young children with autism would benefit from. Yeah. Um, I think my other one is play, right? As I said earlier, that's that primary occupation of a young child. And I think like a dedicated play space and time with their caregiver. I think that one-on-one interaction is so important. And again, like it's just strengthening the attention and the attachment to that caregiver and that relationship. And again, showing that child what this can look like, what can life be like, and just building a relationship that will help them navigate things further along down the road. And then I think like expanding that as well, taking them out into the community, which I am not a parent, so I can't imagine (laughs) taking three children into the community on an outing. I so empathize with these parents that are wrangling many, many things and can anticipate where some of that anxiety and fear may come from. And we are social creatures. So I think creating opportunities for that exploration um, for kids to go to play groups or the park or the zoo um, and navigate like those more dynamic communities, I think is awesome. I think kids are really adaptable and when they can explore those environments, they can be more successful. Um, we often things are more predictable at home, right? Like we're trying to create routines and structures and the rest of our world isn't that way. Well, and I love that too, because I, I I really appreciate that you mentioned, you know, we're social creatures by nature. And I think sometimes some of the stress with those outings comes from not knowing how other people are going to respond. And so, you know, thinking about, sensory friendly events in the community or finding your person, you know, another parent of, um, a young child who also has sensory needs and going to the zoo together, because you're going to feel a little bit more confident knowing that you have somebody with you, who's going to respond compassionately if things don't go the way that you plan, which when do they ever, when you're out in public with children. So, um, just thinking about kind of picking the people who are going to lift you up and support you and thinking about the events where you're likely to also find those people who are just going to be accepting and supportive. And I think more and more, there are those events. I think just communities are becoming more aware of the need to provide, you know, um, some day of the week or some one of the shows or something mm-hmm. like that, that, that is an environment that's sensory friendly. So I encourage parents to do a little Google searching for events in their community that are, um, that are sensory friendly and don't feel pressured to do a ton of it or to do it every day or to do it for a long period of time. Like some exposure, some experience is great, but you don't have to feel like you need to do a lot of it or pay a lot of money for it, you know, just go into the local park and playing in the sandbox for 20 minutes, you know, that's great. Yeah. It doesn't need to be some kind of big expensive class or, um, or show. And sometimes this is, can be something that you ask your therapist to join you doing too. You know, that might be your support person right there is bringing along your 
zero to three provider or, you know, your BCBA, if they're able to meet you at the park, I think some of that thinking about this as like, what's something small that we could do, um, and who can be supportive in that. Right. Any other take home messages for parents, anything that you want to make sure parents know Sarah, you know, about OT or just about, you know, working, working with you or working with their child. I think, again, I think that biggest take home is that while birth to three and therapy is a complex system and it can be challenging to navigate and even discouraging at times, trying to find the right fit or the right resources for you and your family, um, as a parent, you know what your child needs. Mm -hmm. And again, like you are a member of that team at all times and have a right to have a seat at that table and to advocate for what you believe is best for your child um, and to find a team that will support you in that process. Yes. And ask questions. Like I, I feel like I meet a lot of times with families who they're not even exactly sure who's on their team or, you know, like what exactly an occupational therapist is. And that's fine. I mean, now, hopefully after listening to the podcast, they have a better understanding, but if you leave the podcast and you can't remember, it's absolutely fine to go to your team member and say, remind me, remind me what's different about you than physical therapy. Because we've got both of these things. And I, you know, it, 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 it takes some time to, to figure out all the differences in each of these disciplines and each of these kinds of therapies. And, and it's, there's no dumb question. Just ask your questions mm-hmm. and keep on asking them until you feel comfortable. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah, for Thank being you. here with us. We're really excited to have you. And um, I think it's time for us to be done for the morning. It's so time. time. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thank you guys. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This podcast represents the opinions of Drs. Ashley Penny and Jessica Greenson and our guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as clinical or medical advice and is for information purposes only. Because each child is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional with any specific questions. Views and opinions expressed on the podcast are our own. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we're sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast, and in no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. Thank you.